Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is James Esses, a formerly criminal barrister who's been a civil servant for a number of years working in crime and criminal justice. Esses has been transitioning into a career in psychotherapy where he's currently a psychotherapist in training, undertaking a master's degree. He sees clients weekly for therapy, and he has also been a volunteer children's counselor for five years. I welcome James Esses to Savage Minds. There have been concerns over legislation to ban conversion therapy, something you've been involved with, and the impact that this will have for both therapists and clients in relationship to gender identity. So you started a petition, uh, the petition that's on the parliament.uk site, where you're trying to get 10,000 signatures to force the government to respond. You wrote a piece on Quillette about this as well. Can you tell us about what is at stake with conversion therapy? Because a lot of people will be confused because for years we've used conversion therapy to mean about homosexuality. Yes. Well, you know, I think I think the first thing to start off by saying is that myself and all of the colleagues that I'm working with are of the view very clearly that conversion therapy, you know, forcing someone to change their sexuality um, is absolutely abhorrent. Thankfully, most of its practices have been illegal for many years um, and are captured by various other criminal legislation. Um, our concern and my concern came off the back of this conflation that we found between conversion therapy and then simply beneficial explorative therapy for treating those with gender dysphoria. Um, so there's the conflation between the kind of sexuality and the gender issue. Um, there's also a bit of a conflation in terms of even just the term conversion therapy. Actually, I would argue quite strongly that it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, you mentioned Stonewall. They last year did a study into conversion therapy in the UK and they held it as this kind of sweeping statement as to how you know widespread these practices were. And then when I when I looked in detail at the facts and statistics they produced, nearly all of these um, situations in which conversion therapy in inverted commas was taking place were in religious settings or carried out by a family member. So I find that the term therapy in conversion therapy is extremely misleading to the public. And it, it makes people think that there are kind of rogue therapists out there carrying out these practices. Whereas what I've been arguing for safeguarding the petition are you know, beneficial therapy carried out by trained accredited professionals. Yes, and there's also the hyperbole that is quite commonly spouted in the US where people believe conversion therapy takes place in terms of these Christian camps where you send your kid for a month in summer to come out heterosexual. And even though these types of camps have existed, they are not the preponderance of what is going on today. There's been an enormous amount of acceptance of homosexuality in the past two decades. Oh, oh exactly so. Um... And again, you know, at, at one point, even in this country, these practices were more commonplace. And as I said, you know, some of the things that people went through and some of the 
treatment, again, in inverted commas, that people were subjected to is absolutely horrific. So there's no surprise to me that people have very strong negative feelings towards this type of conversion therapy and they want it banned. And I would absolutely support that. But once we start to conflate sexuality with gender identity, and once we begin to conflate those type of abhorrent practices with kind of just normal therapeutic processes, I think we're in very dangerous territory. And your petition to the government has gained the necessary 10,000 signatures. So it will be up for debate within Parliament. And tell us what the core of this petition is about, because you say that you and other therapists are deeply concerned by the possibility of normal therapeutic practices being banned alongside conversion therapy. What does that mean? Well, I once I heard murmurings that the government were looking at legislating I did some analysis of what's happened in other countries because I always find that quite a useful place to start and, and my background is in law I was, I was previously a, uh, a criminal barrister so you know I looked at what happened in other countries and what I found was really quite shocking so um, some of the most recent examples include uh, Bill C6 in Canada there's also been legislation that's gone through in Victoria Australia banning conversion therapy but when I look at the wording, it's so extraordinarily broad and ambiguous that arguably it could capture any type of therapy that does not affirm transitioning as the only way forward. Um, I think that's very dangerous for the world of therapists. You know, as therapists, we're meant to go into each interaction with the client with, without any preconceived idea of where we should be ending up. Whereas actually this legislation almost seems to be mandating affirmation of transitioning. Um, so I'm very concerned about what the wording could be like. Um, and particularly because as I'm sure you and your listeners are well aware, language in this space is very contentious and very prone to abuse and people do not agree on set definitions. So to legislate in this very complex field also carries significant risks. Um, so I'm worried about the impact it's going to have on clients, as I said, in terms of having to affirm them and, and, and not engage in beneficial exploration, um, which I think is a necessity when it comes to any mental health condition. Um, I'm also concerned about what it's going to do for the profession. You know, I've spoken to many therapists who have said that if this legislation goes through, that they'll just simply refuse to see clients with gender dysphoria because the stakes are too high and that they could wind up being accused of practicing conversion therapy. And in, in Australia, for example, uh, the maximum penalty for that if you're found guilty is 10 years in prison. And that's just a price that I think many therapists do not want to pay. And so this will result necessarily that children are fast-tracked into the diagnosis of gender dysphoria with the conterminous possible puberty blockers, possible cross-sex hormones, with little to no questioning. Well, I think that's kind of the logical conclusion, because if there's less therapists willing to even engage with people, and if those therapists that are willing to engage are basically forced into affirming transitioning, then yes, I, I feel that more and more children are going to be headed down this kind of one-way path without any room for exploration whatsoever. Now, obviously, many of our listeners, myself included, I was in psychoanalysis. I loved it. Uh, part of the practice of being in therapy or in psychoanalysis, part of it at least, is a kind of questioning of one's life, direction, ideas, inner thoughts, even questioning of what we see outside of ourselves within the social. 
why is there a push to have gender codified as this untouchable? Mm. You're, you're completely right. And actually in the therapy space, you know, it's meant to be a safe space where nothing is off limits. And, you know, people can find such deep insights in places of their mind that they wouldn't have thought of previously. And, you know, so much of what we experience in adulthood and even in adolescence is linked in with what we experience in childhood. Um, and the, statistic, the statistics are borne out in showing that there's a huge amount of comorbidity with those with gender dysphoria, um, lots of other mental health conditions um, that people seem to be experiencing simultaneously. In terms of why this is the case, um, I think it's to do with this wider societal shift that we've seen in recent times towards, uh, towards political correctness, towards uh, identity politics, towards uh, even kind of victim hierarchies. Um, people are very afraid to, to be seen to be anything negative in society. I mean, you know, when I launched my petition, I didn't think it was that controversial, actually. Really, what it's saying is we need to safeguard therapy for vulnerable children. I wasn't sure that anyone would necessarily disagree with that. But yes, I received, you know, the usual abuse over Twitter in particular, calling me transphobic, etc. Um, and I think for most people, they don't want to put themselves in harm's way of receiving that type of vitriol. And so they just go along with it, even if it's not what they necessarily think. Certainly, we've seen, well, some of your colleagues, in fact, uh, James Caspian mm. has bared the burden of what happened to him and his studies. And it's not surprising, even though it is shocking to see the kind of pushback that people who think like you do in this profession are getting such vitriol. What harm would it have done for James to have been allowed to do his research on detransitioners. Isn't more information better? That's what the transgender lobby has told us, but when push comes to shove, they're trying to shut down, not only dialogue, but scientific investigation. Mm -hmm. What is your hope that will happen in parliament and maybe on a wider scale with therapists? Because as you are aware, there are organizations like the APA in the US that is getting on board with this kind of black and white thinking. There is no nuance here at all when it comes to gender identity, which is odd because the same organization takes nuance with other conditions. Completely right, you know, and you, you mentioned what's been happening with Stonewall over recent weeks, which I think is, um, I think it's, it's positive news. It's certainly going in the right direction, but they still hold a huge amount of clout and sway in this field. Um, and what I find most interesting, because as part of the government's announcement that they would be looking to ban conversion therapy <clears throat> during this sitting of parliament, um, I was very interested with Stonewall's response because, you know, um, Liz Truss, who's the Equalities Minister, made a point of saying that there was going to be a formal consultation before this because it's very complex and very sensitive and therefore we need to ensure that all sides are heard. And Stonewall came out immediately out on Twitter and said, We've we, we don't want a consultation. We just want the legislation. And I thought that was very, very dangerous. I also thought it was quite interesting, actually, almost as if they're, they're, they're afraid of having a kind of open dialogue on this. And the reason I think that is, is because 
I'm not convinced they've got the arguments to match up to what myself, my colleagues are saying. And so it's far easier for them to simply shut down the debate. But I, I think the fact that the government are proposing this consultation pre any legislation being drafted is a very welcome step. Um, we're still waiting for that consultation to be launched and see exactly how people can play a part in it. But, you know, it, it, it's certainly very positive from our perspective. You're part of Thoughtful Therapists. Now that involves others. I've also had Stella O'Malley on the show. How many of you are there in Thoughtful Therapists and how many therapists are reaching out to speak with you all? Well, you know, we, we've kind of started a bit of grassroots through informal networking, and we only really kind of formally set ourselves up now a couple of months ago. And we're, we're trying to build up the infrastructure. We, we've only recently, last week, launched our website. Um, we're trying to kind of get the message out there as much as possible to other therapists who might be interested in, in joining our cause. So, you know, at, at this stage, we're, we're still we're still growing. Um, and but I think we've got a decent platform already to kind of get out there in, in the mainstream media. I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few of the people that form part of our group. Um, you know, these are very respected, um, very experienced therapists in their field. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm confident that we can continue to grow. Um, but I think what we need to do is to kind of reassure people that, you know, it is safe to speak out about these things and that if you are the victim of this abuse or vitriol or shaming online, that you'll have a group of like-minded therapists who will have your back. What are the fundamental arguments that people are making from both the trans community and then their acolytes? Because often people mistake when we, when I say trans advocates, I'm not only speaking about transgender identified people, but there's a large lobby of people around them who are not at all mm -hmm. trans. What are they saying is wrong with talk therapy? Because I still, I want to be convinced of an argument here and I'm not seeing it. What is, what is their position? That you're having a therapeutic conversation with the client about gender dysphoria will do what to them? Um, it's a very interesting question. You, you'll notice I've paused for silence and that's because I'm racking my brain and I, I can't really think of many cogent arguments uh, having actually been put forward. As I said, they tend to shut down the debate before it's even begun. But my, my guess is that they, they view gender identity as, well, they equate it with biology. They view these things as completely flexible and fluid. And they're of the view that, well, they're certainly of the view that gender dysphoria should not be pathologized. I mean, you know, I've, I find that particularly interesting. Um, on the one hand, they say, you know, please allow us to take irreversible medication and even surgery because we're, we're suffering so much. But on, on the other hand, they say, but we don't want you to pathologize us. It's kind of one or the other, really. You, you can't have it both ways. The fact is that gender dysphoria is a recognized mental health condition under the DSM. Um, and so it needs to be treated accordingly. But I think, I think a lot of these activists are of the view that it shouldn't be pathologized. You know, it's not a mental health condition. It's just the way that somebody is and actually trying to do any form of therapeutic engagement with them, which does not affirm, is basically denying them the right to be who they are. Now, the language of true self, of who I really am, coming out even, and I say this as a person who is 
I am also gay. I find some of these terms tiring today. They, they reek to me of what adolescents go through. And there's nothing wrong with what adolescents go through, mind you. I just wonder why grown adults are going through what seems to be a protracted or a repeated adolescence in the sense of adolescents go through rebellion, adolescents discover themselves, and bizarrely, they do it usually within their own bubble of adolescence. <laughs> Here we have adults bringing this to every single media outlet. I don't think there's a day that has gone by that I haven't seen an article about someone's brave coming out as a this or that uh, trans-identified person or someone finding their true identity. What does that mean? Uh, I, I've lived enough to know that we are not one thing we change all the time in life. And one of my worries about the rhetoric of transgender identity is it tries to put a full stop on life where life is never a full stop, no matter what your trials and tribulations are or have been. Life is a series of, of stagnation and movement, depending on how you move through life. And I worry that this politicization of an ideology is attempting to pull people under this tidal wave of identity without thinking of the repercussions that that means, even beyond therapy, of course, but also in therapy, because therapy is a place where the most vulnerable adolescents, people beginning in life, especially speaking of maybe their early 20s, are starting to figure out who they are, where they might want to go, but that's a that's still a voyage. That's never a full stop. What can you say about how transgender identity might relate to these stages of adolescence, even the ones who are advocating against the kind of work you and others are trying to do? And let's talk about this. What does that mean to identify as a woman or a man? Or what does it mean to feel like a woman or a man, given in our recent history in the West and even the non-West, because Turkish people will know of Bülent Arsoy, who's one of their most famous Arabesque singers who was a transsexual. He, I think, transitioned in the 1970s and became a pop star in Turkey. Uh, of course, today we're not supposed to say transsexual, but Bülent Arsoy calls himself a transsexual. So what does this mean for our society when it seems to be the cultural direction is put towards those in search of themselves, never towards a more open dialogue about what that search means. Mm. Well, look, you're, you're completely right in terms of this idea of exploration and self-understanding, you know, being a part of puberty and adolescence. I mean, you know, in many ways, it's unsurprising that people question things such as gender norms and their place in the world. You know, there's so many physical, social, neuropsychological changes that teenagers are going through during the period of puberty. Um, you have all sorts of questions and doubts about yourself in all sorts of ways. But by and large, these things, in all respects, do tend to settle down eventually. I mean, the statistics are certainly borne out by that. Um, you know, one of the most major studies in this showed that, you know, over 80% of children with gender dysphoria will eventually settle into their biological sex. Um, I think it's interesting that 
we we missed the point around acceptance of kind of just how people are. We and I think this ties into identity politics a lot more. But you know, what is wrong with being gender atypical? You know, what is wrong with being a more feminine boy or a more masculine girl? We, we, we don't, I feel we don't spend enough time talking about that and actually looking a bit more around stereotypes of these kind of gender norms. You know, there's nothing wrong with being gender atypical, but instead the conversation gets conflated again along the lines of, well, if you think you're in the wrong gender, then you need to transition. Um, it's, it's, it's unsurprising in many ways. You know, again, puberty and people who go through through those kind of formative years it's it's a time of a loss of self-doubt often a loss of insecurity and anxiety and actually here you have a society basically saying come and join us you know if you say that you're ex we will celebrate you you know um you know we will really embrace who you are as a person you, you're on the receiving end of a lot of love a lot of admiration a lot of praise for coming out as it were so again it's easy to see why that might be tempting when you're going through puberty and feeling like rubbish about yourself um i also think there's something about in terms of why kind of adults you know particularly trans activists push these lines i think it's because it's very important for them to have an enemy an external enemy you know, one thing I want to try and get people to appreciate is that we all have shadow sides. We are, you know, we're all capable of acting, you know, in misguided or immoral ways. But I find that with a lot of these activists, if they kind of put all of that, if they project all of that kind of animosity towards an external enemy, then they can kind of convince themselves that they are pious and free of any wrongdoing whatsoever. And I just think, I think people are just lying to themselves, really. But I, I feel that they almost need to set up an enemy for them to go after, if that makes sense. So it completely does. Identity politics began really strong around 2010, 11, 12, in terms of gender. And I do wonder if there's not a larger problem of the way we're heading towards the last stages, or we are perhaps in the last stages of capitalism, that identity politics gives us a way of rubber stamping ourselves with the only power left since the economy's been shot, jobs for youth, practically non-existent. In fact, they're going to university, they can study queer theory to come out being a barista because if you study queer theory, you're going to be very limited in the applications for it. And I, I do wonder about the larger social framework for how we got to this point that you cannot have a decent conversation online about any subject without being called a racist, a transphobe, any number other uh, bigoted titles that you could have thrown at you. And it does make mm. me think that we have lost the ability to have discussions. Now, is this because of the use of internet? People are faceless and they can be more abusive? Probably that plays a huge part of it, but what has gone down that people feel free to then call up employers, have people lose their jobs, their, their lives are threatened such that they have to have a bodyguard, they lose their housing. I've talked to people who've lost teaching jobs, full-time jobs, families to feed, suddenly they can't. And all of this because they say that the desistance that Zucker spoke of and got him also in trouble from his institute in Toronto 
84% was the study at the time, and it's pretty much within those measures right now. 84% of adolescents who identify as transgender desist. That's a very high percentage to then argue against and say, but let's just affirm, let's do the fast track model, let's get them on Lupron. When again, as we know earlier this year, the Tavistock finally released its report where it showed the kinds of harm that's done to adolescents and children who have these puberty blockers, not least of which is loss of bone density. There are other studies in sheep that show problems within brain development. So how is it that on the one hand, as you said earlier, many of these activists are working against a medical model, but if you skip over the pond to the US, they would never do that because once it's demedicalized, it will no longer be covered by insurance. So that's a concern. So you have that. Is it medicalized or is it not? Then you have the whole lobby that goes after anyone having to do with the writing of the DSM-5, what will next be six. And that group of people were heavily lobbied and they were pushed on. Then you have the people that say, let's change the wording in the DSM. So it's no longer gender identity disorder and now it's gender dysphoria. And next time, what will it be called, James? And I worry that where what should be private, individual therapeutic moments or private medical treatments have become so politicized that no one's able to make sense out of what's happening and doctors and clinicians and therapists and analysts are being threatened with pushing back at all on what's happening. When I think that's the only logical thing to do given the masses politicizing this. What are some of the answers to get out of this? Because it seems really harsh that I see people being threatened with potentially homelessness if they are to speak out. And yet that same th therapist feels professionally obliged to speak out because what they see, some have said to me, they see this as a form of gay conversion therapy. Well, it's, it's, it's terrifying, really. I mean, we seem in this day and age to embrace diversity in everything except diversity of thought, which I would argue is the most important diversity that we should have. Um, and certainly in times gone by, and if we think back to our forefathers, etc., if, if we had not been as human beings able to work alongside people with different views to us, I'm not even convinced we'd be in existence today. It's part and parcel of being human and, and kind of building society that you have to be able to work with people, even if the views are polar opposite to you. But as you've alluded to, we've come into a day and age in which that is simply almost impossible. And that as soon as somebody takes the slightest bit of offense to anything, immediately the conversation gets shut down. Um, for me personally, I think that we have to kind of fight back against this on a grassroots level and actually you know, small wins. It, language, for example, for me, actually is fundamental. You know, I hear from a lot of people who feel pressured into, let's say, putting their chosen pronouns in their email signature at work. They kind of feel that pressure coming from the organisation or more, you know, societally wide. They always say to me, well, you know, it's just a small gesture, isn't it? You know, I don't want to offend anyone. It, it means that there can't be any comeback to me, so I'll just do it. 
but what what they don't realize is that you know language is everything to human beings you know language often when people are incarcerated or you know have their liberties taken away from them freedom to speak and to use words is the one remaining freedom that they've got and what i'm finding is that it's been chipping chipping away very slowly but surely and once you start to normalize these things so once you start to have a majority of people putting their pronouns it, it begins to normalize for the new generation and it begins to get even children to question well actually maybe maybe i am in the wrong body um you know seeing that all these adults around here are kind of stating very clearly whether they're cisgender or not maybe actually maybe there is something different or wrong with me. So I think language is absolutely fundamental. Um, and I think we need to try and, but this is gonna take time, try and make people feel safe enough and supported enough to actually stand up against these things, whether it's in their relationships or with the family or in a workplace or whatever it might be. Because as you've said at the moment, these activists can go after people's livelihoods and their reputations and it's not surprising that people are too afraid to stand up but we need to find a way to kind of captivate what i believe is a silent majority in society who are very much on our side but are just simply too afraid to speak out yes uh, this morning i spoke with simon fanshaw and we were discussing this because there was for many years many gay men and women were not speaking out in fact they were pushing this narrative and that tidal wave is coming in now. There's so many gay men and women really sick of it. And they said, I've been wanting to say something for so long. And now they are in part because of social media. But let's not forget social media is where some of the madness began as well. But one of my questions has always been for my friends and colleagues who work fighting some of this along the lines of the rights of trans identified youth or gay and lesbian youth, how are we going to fix this? And I say to them always, as long as you have a great number of adults talking about their identity, it's always gonna filter down to youth. I think we need to challenge this from the get-go because what is gender dysphoria? See, this is, this is where my philosophical problem with this comes up. Everyone has a personality, everyone has problems, everyone has, has struggles in lives. But what does that mean to have a gender identity? And then on the other hand, where you have gender dysphoria as this discomfort with one's body, it's based against this backdrop of societal constructions of gender. So how is it that we came to have medical diagnoses of something that is completely it's iterative of the culture. I say this in the sense of you don't have clients coming to you from Southern England, let's say, who suddenly wake up or all their childhood knew that they were really a Saharawiya, a, a female in a black hike, like a, a Saharan sari. You don't have that. You have very specifically cultured identifications. And Part of my problem as a, as a woman, as a gay woman, is that I see the signs of deeply entrenched misogyny and homophobia within a lot of what has been spun as finding one's authentic self. What does that mean when someone says, I want to be treated like a woman, please don't treat me like a woman ever, James. You know what I mean? Hmm. This is what I've spent my life fighting. I don't want to be treated like a woman. I want to be treated like a human. Well, this is it. I, and, and, and people... <laughs> 
as I said, you know, gender atypicality, you know, this relates back to kind of, you know, stereotypes and expectations that we place on certain, uh, on the sexes, you know, in terms of how they should act or behave in society. But, you know, if, if we left it at that and tried to tackle those stereotypes, I'd say fair enough. But one of the biggest contradictions I find from a lot of these activists is that they say, you know, you, you are whatever you feel you are and nobody else can tell you otherwise. And what's most important is what you think and how you feel inside your body. It doesn't actually matter what I'm going to use their term, what sex you were assigned at birth. All that matters is what you think. And then in the other breath, they're saying, but actually we want children to be able to take puberty blockers and cross sex hormones and potentially irreversible surgery to change their physical body to line up with how they feel. I find that completely contradictory. Um, and yet, I don't find enough people kind of calling out the activists on this. Um, but it's, you know, to question, um, to be uncertain, it's part of the human condition. And, and the thing is, I read a very good article recently about this idea of being non-binary. And it basically said, well, you, you, gender is either binary or it's a spectrum. You cannot have it both ways. Um, you know, the, the, the term non-binary in and of itself seems to suggest that actually gender is a, is a binary between one or the other, but we don't actually, you know, we don't find that. We, I mean, what is the 100% masculine male and the then 100% feminine female? It, these things don't exist. We're, we're all made up of different attributes and characteristics that could be considered by a society to be masculine or feminine. And, and I would like us to just allow people to do what they, you know, act how they want in life and to enjoy the things that they want to enjoy. But, but this narrative that if you find that you're, you know, born in a man's body, but identify with female characteristics or feminine characteristics that you should therefore potentially irreversibly change your body. I just find that so dangerous, and particularly for children. Well, it's also troubling the way that we're seeing stereotypes of gender being recycled by the very people that say, I'm breaking the gender binary. Mm. Back around, I'm looking at it right now, 1998, I taught a graduate course at the New School in New York on masculinity. It was Mediating Masculinities was the name of the course. And each week we did a lot of readings throughout the semester about what masculinity means. There was a week where we, it was all about Rock Hudson films and the kind of interior design that denoted this kind of gay male on ontology. Uh, but the week of, I called it tough guys, the decline of the American West and the search for law and order. I had Johnny Guitar and the Wild Bunch. Those were the two films. There was an essay that I think people should read by Mitchell, Still Landscapes and Moral Restraint and Violence Begets. And it was all about how men, and also I'm sure there's another one by Jane Tompkins, Language and Landscape. Both of those articles address the idea of violence as being both denotative of masculinity, but also of this kind of homoeroticism, which is quite interesting given Nicholas Ray's personal life and the way that his, his oeuvre has been interpreted as that of a, a closeted gay male filmmaker. But what's really interesting to me is how then you go to readings of Greek mythology. Uh, think of Medea. What could be more masculine than killing your own children? 
I mean, according, you know, I'm giving this a feminist spin. Mm. This is the problem. You have two readings of violence where violence is so super feminine. If you go back to Greek tragedy, throwing the children off the cliffs, right? Or is it super like El Mariachi, Robert Rodriguez, killing everyone in sight? Uh, I think that the ideas of how we see masculinity or femininity are so culturally informed that it becomes really impossible to say is one is a man wearing a suit masculine or feminine because if we go back far enough in history women didn't have heels it was the men who had heels on their shoes and I do question a lot of these tropes within the narrative of gender identity because they are so fleeting historically and temporally speaking because every time we want to point to what look look at men in the 70s they were wearing bell bottoms they were wearing Nehru shirts what could be more feminine than that but let's not discuss that or I referred to David Bowie the other day Ziggy Stardust or any number of rock groups from the 70s and 80s I don't think I can remember any groups in the 80s where the men were not wearing makeup they were largely wearing makeup and the groups could have been completely heterosexual men, but that's what we were given in the 80s. It was a time of super performativity where music videos were blossoming. So makeup was one of those expressions. And I find it very curious that the very lobby that has sought to break down boundaries as they claim between the gender binaries has recreated them. Because at the end of the day, they do this whole loop where I'm breaking down the binary, but then let's go over here and I want to participate as a woman in sports. Never let's create our own non-binary sports categories. Or wait, I think it would be great to explore my non-binariness with a therapist and that children should as well. No, we're going to break it down into, because the binary there is you're a hateful transphobic therapist or you agree with me. And it's a very strange rhetoric that we saw, again, post 9-11 with Bush's, you're either with us or against us, this cowboy villain hero dichotomy that was set up. What shocks me is that you have a lot of supporters of this ideology, as I mentioned, the American Psychological Association, but you have this also in Europe. Many psychological organizations are getting behind an ideology that's very troubling. How can they know what conversion therapy is if from the get-go it's being decided by political activists. You see what I'm saying? We know what conversion therapy for gay kids looks like, but the reality is that most people seeking to understand what they might think could be gender dysphoria or what might just be regular gender nonconformity like the rest of us, because I have never met anyone who's entirely masculine or feminine, never, ever, ever, so why has this become such a verboten topic such that in the memorandum of understanding on conver conversion therapy in the UK, you have many supporters of this who might unwittingly be getting on board with homophobia because the minute that you start converting kids to this fast tracking of transgender identity, you are necessarily committing to the other form of therapy conversion? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that as a society, we engage more and more in, in this kind of black or white thinking, this all or nothing with us or without us. 
<clears throat> and I, I, I just find that there's no room for nuance in, in any of this whatsoever. <clears throat> I mean, you were referencing, you know, um, you know, particularly some pop stars and things in days gone by, and it, the, the paradox is, it almost feels as if you know we were more tolerant of those things back then. Actually, this idea of being gender atypical, you know, you wear what you want, you act how you want, you know, you you, you live your life. Whereas nowadays, I feel particularly for children, and you know, I've seen lots of education materials that are quite worryingly being shown to children from quite a young age. But nowadays, the narrative is pushed that well, if you feel atypical to your gender stereotypes, then maybe, just maybe, you're actually in the wrong body. <clears throat> and that can send people down an awful spin. I mean, for children in particular, one of the one of the most early forms of development in terms of acknowledging and understanding and recognizing your surroundings is actually noticing the difference between boys and girls. Um, and I find that this narrative of telling young people, well, actually, you were simply assigned, you know, a, a, a sex at birth must be so disconcerting and so confusing. I mean, it throws up into question everything that that young person ever knew about themselves inherently. And it tells them, well, actually, you might have thought this, but in reality, it's not the truth. So I, f I find it very, very concerning. Um, yeah, and I... <laughs> I, I don't know. There's just there's 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 no room for this for this nuance, and I think what happens is that children in particular uh, end up being kind of captured by a lot of these you know politicised cheerleaders. I mean, certainly when I've when I've engaged in my counselling with children in the past, I find so many of them when I kind of gently challenge them around what they understand to be the meanings of gender or sex, they they can't quite tell me, and yet because often they're, they're very young. You know, I've spoken to children as young as 10, 11, who tell me they're in the wrong body. Um, and actually everything they've learned is via Google or via these organizations, websites or, or chat boards where people are just being encouraged quite dangerously to, to kind of pursue these paths. And I find that so much of my work with, this, with these young people has been to just pause and to slow down and to just engage in a process of reflection, to engage in a process of reassurance, um, and to kind of learn a bit about what else is going on for them. As I said, there's huge comorbidities with, with those suffering from gender dysphoria. You know, whether it's previous traumatic experiences, whether it's bullying, whether it's internalized homophobia, whether it's autism spectrum disorder, there's so much that needs unpicking and unpacking. Um, and this oversimplified narrative of, you know, if you feel you're in the wrong body, then you must be transgender. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's pretty terrifying, to be honest. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I want to ask if you've been contacted by other therapists who were struggling with their ethics in terms of they don't agree with what's happening, but they're obliged to follow certain regulatory bodies that have informed them about confirming these children. What, what have you received on the wider spectrum from people who might not be part 
of your yes, organization? Yes, well, well, since I've gone public with the petition in particular, I've received you know various emails from therapists around the country who are giving me their backing, but it's their anonymized backing because unfortunately they just do not feel safe to speak out about this. Um, and I think that's a problem with how the profession of therapy is regulated as a whole in this country. Um, I think people have found both in terms of the training and then also the kind of accreditation bodies, once they are qualified, that there isn't this room for discussion, actually. You know, as you, you've alluded to the memorandum of understanding, you're, you have to sign up to that and actually dialogue or criticism or critique about the document is not an option for those who want to be accredited by these bodies. And so they simply have to sign up to them and swallow them whole. Um, and I know anecdotally that the accreditation bodies have been very quick to take disciplinary action against its members who it views as not you know, conforming to some of these ideas. They're very defensive about them. So it's not really surprising to me. It, it, it actually feels, as I said, from training all the way up to accreditation that this profession has kind of been captured in a way. I know that's a buzzword at the moment, but it really does feel like that. So I think one of the aims of thoughtful therapists is, as I said, to have this safe space where people can come and discuss these things openly and know that they're going to have you know, a, a body of people who support them in whatever they go through. But I think it's going to take time until people feel comfortable doing this. And I, I'm afraid that there'll be a few more casualties and there'll be more collateral damage. I think people are going to lose the jobs. I think people are going to lose, lose the livelihoods and reputation. But it, it does require some people who feel secure or brave enough to actually stand up and speak out because otherwise we're never going to change this. Well, this also calls into question what these larger bodies are doing. It's not just the BACP. We've seen it all over the West, especially English-speaking countries, where these organizations feel like they have the power, including private industry, to tell their own employees what to think about things that have even nothing to do with their jobs. I'm thinking of the way that office spaces have an equality officer who comes in and informs everyone about putting their pronouns in their signature. I've had people write me saying, I don't want to do this, but I have to. And I asked them, well, have you directly said no? And they said, I'm afraid to, because I think I will be called up for it. Another person was called up for it. She wrote me. She had to go in and answer to why she wouldn't put a pronoun in her signature at work. So we're seeing this very bizarre terrain of where, and this is coming, as we all know, from the left. I'm a leftist. But this is coming from the left, this kind of purity spiral of indicating to the world who we really are. It's our coming out story. It's our coming out pronouns. This narcissistic need to be constantly referred to in language, in gesture. And it, it's creepy to me, James. I have to wonder, like, I'm not a therapist, obviously, but I, I've done a lot of work in ethnopsychoanalysis. I'm much more in tune with psychoanalysis. And it seems to remind me of the mirror stage. We're not the mother here, but somehow this larger societal theater is looking to us to mirror its identity. And it feels most inappropriate to me. 
who am I to tell you you're fetching in your makeup or in your hair or in your new dress? That's not my role. And I have had friends in my life who were trans identified, began the process. And it was that stage of, I had to somehow respond to how they look. And it's not my role, even as a friend to someone to tell them if they look good in a dress. Cause if you really want me to be your friend, I'll tell you the truth. And you might not want that because that's what friends do, right? We tell each other the inconvenient truths. Otherwise we probably wouldn't be friends. It seems that we are living in this very strange protracted mirror stage where a bunch of adults have decided that you, me and others, our job in life is to confirm how they feel. And that just reeks of creepy all over to me because it's a imposition of an intimacy that I just simply don't want. What do you think is causing this? Because I'm talking even outside of trans identity, we're seeing this, we saw at BLM last year where white people were on the knees confessing to being horrible racist, not that they had anything racist, just for existing, original racist sin, original cis sin, original, I see a man in a dress so you are a transphobe because where I was growing up and when I was growing up, loads of men wore dresses and were just men in dresses. They were a rock star, you know? I think one of the greatest paradoxes in my mind is that all of those who have told us for so many years that all they want is equality, all they want is for everyone to be treated the same, are the ones now who have created this kind of, uh, this, this foundation of divisive identity politics in which actually people are being separated off into the categories, broad sweeping statements are being made about groups of people as if they're homogenous. And I rally against that in all forms. You know, many, many transgender people I've spoken to say that Stonewall does not speak on their behalf, even though Stonewall themselves say they speak on behalf of all transgender people. Equally, terms such as white privilege or male privilege, I actively reject those because I find that what you're doing is homogenizing, you know, diverse groups of people and assuming that you know everything about them simply on the basis of some, you know, immutable characteristic of theirs. So, I find that we've almost gone backwards in this. Uh, and now people's self-identification ends up becoming the most important thing about them. I mean, I, I read a very good article, which I have bookmarked in The Spectator um, from a couple of years ago. You know, it, the, the article itself wasn't without its controversies. The, the title was Why I'm Sick of Pride. But what, what interested me was the, was the final couple of lines. Um, and, and basically what the writer says is, that people who celebrate pride should be free and equal to do absolutely anything that they like in life. But actually the fact that they are gay or the fact that they are transgender is the least interesting thing about them. And he finishes off the article by saying, tell me something else. And I found that to be quite a powerful statement because as you said, people's sexuality, people's gender identity ends up almost becoming at the forefront of things in which it's kind of irrelevant, such as in a workplace. You know, um, and, and yet that, that seems to be our kind of focus and our fixation, whereas I'd like us to try, if, if at all possible, to kind of drop these labels and to drop these categories and just go back to being human beings who, who live the lives as they want to live them. But we've gone, we've gone the wrong direction, I feel. Well, I saw this in the gay community in the 90s, where 
it was heading towards super conservatism. And I was worried about this. There was already a problem of racism within the gay community because it was so homogenized and so white, even in New York City at the time. And now here we are where it's not only been completely commercialized, it's, it's insane how going to gay pride looks just like one long advertising stream from one company, airline, bar, disco and play, you know, theater. And there's very little of interest in there because I think we've forgotten what makes us human. I agree with that article. I've said it for years. Being gay is the least interesting part of me. And I think, well, I hope it's always that way. It should be that way. Who runs around worrying about someone's sexuality at heart? I, I think that we need to get back to maybe life offline. That's part of the solution. I use Twitter and Facebook as forums to talk to people who are far away. And also Facebook's a great free telephone. But I think we need to start having everyday conversations with people in our actual geographical areas. How many people use social media and don't even know their next door neighbor? How many people say, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist in New York who said many years ago, she said, now when I have clients who say, I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, I have to stop them. And I have to say, have you ever met them in real life? And she says, what does this say about our society? And I think it's not a coincidence that gender identity has riven exponentially with the exponential explosive use of online platforms. One, I think there are studies that have been done on this, but there needs to be a far longer study, maybe over two decades, that looks at this kind of outrage machinery that comes in tandem with spending a lot of time online, that comes in tandem also to not having in real life friends. And another thing that's also striking to me is how many of these people with identities are the most miserable people. Like, honestly, if I were an employer, I would look for ways to not hire people with pronouns simply because I don't want to have a work environment that's fraught with kangaroo courts every day. I don't want to worry that my good workers will have to be beholden to people who deem themselves special. Because that's the first thing that fragments an egalitarian workspace. It's when you have someone that comes in basically trying to cause problems, even through the most, what they might see as the most innocuous of methods. And all this speaks to our inability to then speak frankly. Because I remember, do you remember when people would sit down, have a coffee and disagree at a table? I think we're moving too far away from that. And I'm wondering if in your practice, you've seen maybe some of the ramifications of people actually spending oh, far too much time online. But as I said, I think, I think this links into these victim narratives, these identity politics, um, people wanting to be special um, because as you've alluded to, people spend so much more time isolated other than kind of through the devices. It's not surprising to me that people want to stand out, that people want to be, at the, you know, to receive praise and admiration for what they're doing. Um, you know, and it, it, I think this is quite a useful strategic technique that a lot of these activists use. I mean, the term cisgender now these days 
it's almost like a slur. The, the way it's said often, it's, it sounds a bit boring in many ways. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that there's lots of young people out there say, actually, no, nah, I don't want to be cisgender because it's boring, it's dull, it's vanilla. You want to be far more exciting than that. But I, I've, I have seen um, the kind of ramifications of this play out in the mental health setting and not just in relation to gender, because I think if we think it's only in relation to gender, we're kidding ourselves. I, I attended a, a training course a number of years ago um, in mental health. It was to become a, a, a basically a, a kind of a mental health activist in the workplace um, and that you can help your colleagues when they're struggling. And it was a two day course <clears throat> and the facilitator played a video entitled, I had a black dog, his name was Depression. Um, this is off the back of a well-known book um, written by, by a chap who basically it's a cartoon book and he identifies his depression as this black dog that he owns that gets bigger and bigger until it's eventually as big as his house. Um, and this video was put together by the World Health Organization, basically in line with that. So we watched the video. Um, you know, it was a very moving video about the impact that depression can have on people. And at the end, the facilitator asked for reflections and thoughts about it. Um, and there were a few black people in the group. And what ensued was an hour long I would say argument between the few black people in the group and the facilitator in which the black people in the group were saying that the mere fact that she showed us this video was racist and that they wanted the facilitator to apologize to the entire group for having even played such a thing because it was very as I said racist and, and, and offensive to black people because of the fact that in this video it was a black dog that was signifying depression and you know that that for me is still one of the most troubling things I've ever seen, because if you actually read into it and do research and we look back into mythology, black dogs have been used since time immemorial to represent something quite scary and unwanted. I mean, even if we think of Cerberus, you know, the three headed dog um, in, 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 in hell. Um, but what we've I think what we brought about on society nowadays is that it's oversimplified with that nuance. So if you see something that is black, and it has a negative connotation, it must automatically be racist. I, I just think it's very worrying. There seems to be absolutely no will to have the discussions, hence books like Robin DiAngelo's that teaches people that you are born guilty if you're white are easily consumed and at no cost, by the way. Being black is no more being cool or progressive or open-minded then being a card-carrying Tory is representative of one being a homophobic, bigot, transphobic, bigot, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is what is lying beneath the skin of ideology is that I'm seeing a world population in the West, at least, that's unable to come to terms with nuance because their own political positions have failed them so miserably, where they, the left is no longer standing on a historical material bedrock anymore. It's just deferred to and deflected all arguments towards how do you identify. So of course, last year during lockdown, I wasn't at all surprised to see it was the more right of center groups, politically speaking, that were addressing, but homelessness, but mental health, but how will people eat? And the lockdown baby lockdown group was largely on the left. And I found this frightening because it's the same kind of denial that we're discussing around the MOU that you pushed back on. So can you speak a bit to maybe what is it 
that is in the MOU that so many people are unwilling to engage with? Are we so wrapped up in the need to dismiss material reality that we are flocking to this ethereal pronoun reality? Well, again, you know, the MOU is a document itself, and I know that you've, you know, had had others on on your show spoken to this before. But you know, the, the wording, as with all of these things, very broad, very ambiguous, can be, I think, misinterpreted in in any way, and can be used as a bit of a tool to attack therapists who are just trying to kind of carry out beneficial therapy. But there is that complete and utter willingness to engage. Um, and, and particularly by the signatories to the MOU, who are by and large you know, therapeutic, regulatory or accreditation bodies, um, to which we have the luxury of having to pay a, a membership fee to be a part of them and to be, to be on their register. And yet, I found, my colleagues have found that even as deeply concerned members, they are unwilling to even have an informal conversation with us about our concerns, let alone anything more formal and substantive. Um, you know, as a group, we, we drafted an entire formal submission on our issues with the MOU, and we tried to instigate a formal dialogue with many of our accreditation bodies and many of the signatories to the MOU, and what we heard back was radio silence. Um, so, it's very difficult for us to know what to do because if they're not even willing to entertain the conversation in the first place, what are we to do? And it makes me think that particularly in the world of therapy, there is a significant lack of legitimacy and transparency, actually. And of all vocations, you would hope that there would be the most in this vocation because it's meant to champion active listening. It's meant to champion empathy. It's meant to champion taking people as individuals and not making assumptions about them. And yet everything that I've encountered through these training bodies or these accreditation bodies completely flies in the face of that. Are there talks amongst you and some of your colleagues to maybe create a new organization, as is the case with people fighting back against Stonewall LGB Alliance? In my mind, the BACP should be interested in creating dialogic forums, even now with semi-lockdown, having them online. But why not have the discussion? If you're being met with radio silence, this speaks to the fact that the BACP is not up to the level of engaging professional discourse. Might a new organization take its place? Well, I, I certainly think there is a gap in the market for that. Um, I think, I think there's things that make it easier and there's things that make it more difficult. I think something that makes it a, a real possibility is the fact that actually in the UK, for example, um, psychotherapy is not a, a strictly regulated profession. So anyone could technically put a sign above the door and say that they're therapists. Um, what we have are these kind of accreditation bodies who, if you train with them, you can then advertise, they publicize you, you can have the certificate. Um, but actually, it, it isn't strictly regulated in that respect. So I think that does offer up an opportunity for new organizations to come in. But the problem is, you know, these are the old guard. And you've had BACP and UKCP as kind of the two big ones, though there's many other smaller factions. But they almost have a bit of a monopoly on therapeutic registration in this country. So I, I think it's going to be difficult, particularly given the, the, the funding and the resources that they have, I think it's going to be difficult to kind of come out and try and um, have uh, another option for therapists to go to. But I, I, I would like to see it happen. 
And I, I do think it's something that I and my colleagues are kind of thinking about longer term. But uh, what we, we kind of find ourselves in the space at the moment of having to be on the, you know, on the defense. So we're trying to make sure that this new conversion therapy legislation does not bind us um, and prevent us working with our clients. We're trying to fight back against this MOU that we feel has many negative repercussions. What I hope in time is that once we get off this kind of negative defensive stance, that we can then as a group think about more widely, how do we want to shape this profession going forward? And we can start to engage in more proactive, positive arguments. But right now we're engaged, what I see as basically firefighting. Has there ever been in the history of psychology, an example that parallels what we're discussing, where uh, what was in the day called a patient goes to the therapist and describes the problem and the therapist's task is uniquely to confirm what the patient has described? Not to my knowledge. Um, you know, in fact, as far as I'm aware, I'm always, you know, prepared to be corrected on this, but nobody ever has. In, in, as far as I'm aware, gender dysphoria is the only you know, recognised mental health condition in which the officially sanctioned treatment is to actually encourage the distressing or anxiety-provoking thoughts inside one's head. Uh, so, you know, in, in the case of body dysmorphia, by contrast, for example, you know, patients are not encouraged to remain negatively obsessed with their physical appearance. Uh, you know, patients with anorexia are not encouraged to believe that they are fat. And yet, for some reason, in the treatment of gender dysphoria, which does cause people a hell of a lot of distress, the, the treatment seems to be to, as you said, confirm and affirm that. I find it very odd. Well, I've been having this discussion with many people over the years because I keep, I keep wanting to be wrong. I worked on the Jerusalem syndrome briefly when I was in Jerusalem. And of course, you didn't see mental health experts going to the tops of these hotels. It was often happening at the tops of hotels where men and women were, quote unquote, giving birth to Jesus. They were interned. They were investigated. They had therapies. I've dealt with all sorts of other mental health issues from a ethno-psychoanalytic perspective, I dealt with the Hamadsha in, in Morocco from Fez and those spirit rituals where someone would come through the other side cleansed. But it was no doubt through having seen Aisha Kandisha or whatnot and having broken a few teacups during the evening. But these are local practices of coming to terms with a, a jinn, a spirit. I've never seen any kind of manifestation such as what we are told is gender dysphoria being met with confirmation. And it really drives me a bit nuts at times because I have to wonder to what degree some of the feminists pushing back on Freud, and I'm thinking of Luce Irigaray specifically, I wonder to what degree Irigaray was not completely right. She says at one point that for Freud, woman is the symptom. Now, what does this mean since the beginning, the genesis of gender dysphoria, as we call it today, but back in the mid 50s, when you had a soldier in the UK, another in the US, quote unquote, transition. And this was based on mid 20th century sexism of what a man should not be. Hence, 
a man who feels like he wants to wear a dress should be pathologized, should be medicalized, should be operated upon. Meanwhile, what does this say for what a woman is? And all these questions seem to be lacking to me. I'd like to see more associations far beyond the BACP, but I'd like to see every major therapy and uh, psychoanalytic psychological association address this because I wonder to what degree this is a problem of capitalism, of, of late stage capitalism with individuals going to the institution for rubber stamping. Is it your job to rubber stamp people's identity? And I would argue not. I would argue, in fact, nobody has that place. And I thought that went out the window when people pushed the church from the halls of government. And here we are with this new, it's a postmodern church of sorts, where belief is ideologically imposed from the corridors again, but instead of priests and bishops, these are ideologues of the left who are in basic defiance of everything leftist. It's a, it's a paradox, James, and it, it troubles me because your profession is really important and you could face not only prison time, but should you and others just throw up your hands and say, okay, we're not going to see anyone who says the word gender when they come to us for the first visit, because I don't want that trouble. Then you're going to have the annexing of a large tranche of our society left to, to fade. Oh, exactly. That, that very much is my worry. You know, the, the core tenets of psychotherapy should be around, you know, autonomy, should be around respect and empathy. Um, but it should not be about simply, as you said, rubber stamping, affirming what people are just telling you, because you can be doing people a disservice there. You know, we, it, it is, it is uh, you know, incumbent upon therapists to do and to work in a way that they, you know, perceive to be in the best interest of that individual client that is sat before them. Um, so, you know, if therapy ends up becoming, as you said, some sort of rubber, rubber stamp exercise in which a client, you know, a client comes to us and says, you know, I'm transgender uh, and, and your job is to simply be a kind of, I don't know, a mirror or, a, you know, a, a mouthpiece to just kind of champion and cheerlead what they're saying, then you're not performing therapy at all. Uh, you know, whatsoever, it's incumbent upon us to to explore, to unpack, even, although it might be slightly uncomfortable, to kind of challenge, you know, um, and actually that can end up being one of the most beneficial and freeing processes of therapy. You know, if I, if I think of myself, my own therapeutic journeys over the years, it, it was actually the therapy kind of allowing me to acknowledge and embrace the things that I didn't necessarily like about myself or the things that I kind of wanted to pretend weren't there and just hide away that was the most powerful. And that involved lots of very difficult conversations between myself and my therapist. But, you know, had she just simply praised me and affirmed me to the hilt, I, I would have been in just a bad place as I now as I was then. So we need to be able to challenge our clients and, and we cannot have a one size fits all approach. You know, the fundamental tenet of therapy is that you treat every single client as an individual when they sit down opposite you. And when you have things like broad brush legislation and memorandum of understanding, which treat all of those with gender dysphoria as the same person, you end up doing people a significant disservice. Thank you.
Thank you.